Welcome back, Siege of New Hampshire fans. Before we start into Book 3, I thought I'd share the results from the survey. Thanks to all of you who shared your opinions. It looks like the majority of you preferred the idea of keeping the episodes free, but having ads inserted. 67% of you chose that as your first choice. Your second preference was for keeping the episodes free, but buying me a coffee now and then. 61% of you had that as your second choice. The paid subscription channel approaches were less favored, though a few of you were okay with that. Based on your input, it looks like Book 3 will continue here as the previous two books had. I don't know when the ads might show up. I have the podcast signed up with Podbean's Ad Marketplace. But then, it's up to some advertiser to choose the Siege podcast to run their ads on. None have opted in thus far, but it's only been a week. I'm new to podcast advertising, so I have no idea how quickly any of that works. Guess we'll find out together. With that, it's time to get started on the first chapter of Book 3, Hunger Season. Here we go. The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book 3, Hunger Season. Chapter 1, Drafted. I don't know why I let you talk me into coming, Margaret said out of the side of her mouth. Oh, it won't be that bad, Martin whispered back. All the other meetings have been informative and uh, interesting, if nothing else. And we got here early enough to get seats on the end of a row, just like you like. Martin was pleased at how Susan and Judy volunteered to bake the day's flatbread, thus removing Margaret's last excuse for not coming with him. Yeah, well, you know how I feel about town politics. That was the old town. It was just big enough for some people to get the delusion that they were really important. Cheshire is different. These people are more down to earth, more like regular folks. Regular folks break into fist fights, she quipped. Pfft, that was just Adam's doing. He's not from around here. He moved up from Mass. I told you he was trouble. Everyone else is fine. Margaret rolled her eyes. They look cold. I'm surprised to see so many people when it's uncomfortable in here. You can see their breath. She was right. Puffs of vapor rose from the rows of heads in a sort of rhythm, like a human calliope, without any sound. The auditorium was too inefficient to heat. People had adapted to the new normal by staying bundled up. The crowd murmured and fidgeted, but was otherwise unusually hushed. The grim reality of the recent events dampened the usual pre-meeting chattiness. The relative quiet made it easier to hear a group of people ascending the wooden stairs. More than a few in the crowd turned to see who was coming in. The town clerk, police, and fire chiefs, and all three selectmen entered, stopping their own conversations at the sight of so many people watching them enter the room. The professionals continued up to the head table. The selectmen, ever the politicians, stopped to greet people along the ends of the rows and waved to others deeper in. "'Ah, Mrs. Simmons,' said Jeff Landers. "'Pardon my not shaking hands. I still got my injured wing in this sling for a couple of more days, they tell me.' He leaned closer to half-whisper. "'I found four more cans of beans for the trading session. I hope you brought some more of your jam with you.' 
That autumn raspberry of yours turns our boring old oatmeal into quite a treat. Margaret nodded without saying anything. Landers moved on to the next citizen to greet. Martin smiled, seeing the big smile that Margaret had on her face. She couldn't help a beam of pride. What? The smile vanished. She frowned at Martin. Oh, nothing. Martin continued to smile. She was proud of her cooking, but didn't like to be caught feeling proud. Yeah, he was okay with that. Thank you all for coming, said Landers. It's been a rough couple of days lately, so we appreciate you making the effort to join us. Landers wrapped his gavel with his good hand. Okay, everyone, let's get started. We got a memo this morning from Concord, but before I read that, I'd like to say thanks to all of you who pitched in and helped defend our town. And to all of you who helped with the cleanup and such afterwards. I'd like to say a special thanks to Mr. Simmons for officiating at the services of Aaron and June Kendall, Doris Marchand, and Timothy Dexter. A round of gloved applause rippled through the crowd. Margaret discreetly patted Martin's knee. The ground wasn't too badly frozen yet, continued Landers, so I had Floyd dig a separate trench in the back corner of the cemetery for the attackers. Martin saw the trench. There was far more room than the twelve gang members required. Perhaps it was prudent to plan ahead for casualties of future attacks or criminals. "'What about the prisoner?' someone asked in the crowd. Chief Berg stood up. "'I took him over to county, but they turned us away. Said they were full beyond capacity and understaffed. Got to admit, even at the front door, things smelled like an outhouse.' Fact is, we seem to be stuck with him. We're still trying to sort out just what to do with him. He's a waste of food, Chief, said Pete. I hear you, Pete, said Berg. But we can't just starve him or let him go, and we sure as heck can't just shoot him be done with him, if that's what you're thinking. Chain him to the cow stalls and make him shovel crap, shouted someone. Well, without going into details, Berg said diplomatically, we are looking into some sort of off-site confinement with labor. We do figure he ought to earn his bread and water. This set off some murmurs of agreement in the audience. Has he uh, told you anything yet, Chief? asked Landers. Will they be coming back, or, or why did they come way out here looking for trouble? No, Jeff. Can't get a word out of him. Not even a name. He's got no ID. Nothing. I bet I could make him talk said Pete with menace. Maybe so, said Landers, but we've got bigger issues to tend to at the moment. Now, before we get on to Walter's news update, I'd like to fill you in on the governor's memo. I'll paraphrase, if you don't mind, as there's the usual amount of bureaucraties in the text. First up, the governor has activated New Hampshire's guard units to help with the state police in keeping the peace. Some cities are fairly overwhelmed with law enforcement within their borders. Although local neighborhood watch groups are being formed on the model of the one in Manchester that had promising success. That's kind of what we're doing, added Wilder. Landers nodded. Yeah, apparently there are reports of bandit groups out in the countryside that either prey on isolated homes or ambush vehicular traffic on some of the remoter stretches of highway. Concord says that we're to regard National Guard troops as duly deputized by the governor to enforce all existing laws. 
And no, Pete, before you get all worked up into a lather, this does not mean that the governor has declared martial law. The memo said that the state of emergency has been declared, but this is not a suspension of state law or state constitutional rights. It is not martial law. The governor's office also had a handwritten note for us at the bottom of the memo. I'll read that part. Landers held the paper closer. Citizens of Cheshire, we applaud your determination and resourcefulness in coping with this crisis. Your community is a bellwether for our state. Active proof that people of New Hampshire can make it through the difficulties we all face. Your success is encouragement to us all. What success? someone asked. We just got attacked and lost some good people. Yeah, the memo doesn't say what success, said Landers. Not sure Concord would have heard yet about us stopping the gang attack. We have pulled together over the past couple of weeks. I've heard some other towns haven't done that well in that regard. Yeah, like Nutfield, Wilder interjected. Lots of fighting. Big groups of affordable housing folks, he used air quotes. Mobbed the Walmart, broke in, stripped the place. They were hauling off furniture and toys. TVs, and even mannequins. Police couldn't do a thing. Some of the better-off neighborhoods, like Upper Village and Barkley Hill, strung out barbed wire and threatened to shoot anyone that approached in their fences. I heard at least four people were shot that way. Been a big wave of crimes of opportunity, too. Drew Haddock spoke up. Long Meadow has been the opposite. Seems like everyone's just hunkered down in their homes. Troublemakers from the Indian Lake camps would come into town now and then, but so far, never in numbers that the householders haven't been able to fend off. Yeah, it must have been our working together that the governor was talking about, said Landers. Anyhow, that's the gist of the memo from Concord. National Guard activation and a thumbs up for Cheshire. Now it's your turn, Walter. What do you have for us from the outside world? Uh, well, sir, Walter stood to face the audience. Yeah, there's talk of the military mounting some sort of search-and-rescue mission to find the president. Don't know if it's real or just talk. Yeah, you know how that goes. The country's split seems to have stabilized. For the most part, states on the East Coast, from Maryland on up, except for us, of course, have thrown in with Senator Culp and the feds. West Coast, too. Although it appears California, Oregon, and Washington are kind of split up in their middles, too. The coastal parts are with the feds, the eastern parts have sided with the coalition. The rest of the middle states and the south have sided with the coalition. There are still a few big cities in the middle that are trying to hold out as loyal to the feds, but they're all running low on their FEMA supplies. The coalition states aren't allowing fed trucks to cross their borders. Denver caved last week, and just yesterday got the two-thirds they needed in the coalition congress to be admitted to the coalition. Chicago's in worse shape. Despite the mayor's lockdown and the shoot-to-kill orders, a few people are getting across Chicago's forbidden zone. From what the refugees say, it sounds like hell on earth in there. Chicago probably won't ask for coalition help, if it was even offered. Any chance of the coalition helping us, Walter? asked Landers. Uh, funny you should ask that. A couple of contacts in the middle states say that there's talk of trying to get some aid to us. Seems like they like the fact that New Hampshire isn't kowtowing to the feds and figure that if we can stay standing, it'll be an encouragement to the other parts of the country to buck the feds and join the coalition. 
Talk is that our resistance is what's prompted Eastern Oregon to seek admittance just last week. I thought they tried getting aid to us before and it failed, said Wilder. What about that ship that got intercepted and taken into Boston? Or that plane that crashed in Manchester? Yeah, those were more like private efforts, said Walter. Uh, rumor is the coalition is planning something more coordinated. Pete objected. Now hold on. If you know about it, Walter, then sure as heck the feds know about it. That plan doesn't have a snowball's chance. Yeah, good point, continued Walter. The feds do seem to know something is up. Reports are they beefed up their roadblocks along the border between fed states and coalition states. Senator Culp was given a speech a couple of days ago, doubling down on his no-aid-to-criminals pledge. He's threatening to shoot down any unauthorized aircraft over his states. How's he going to do that? asked Pete. You just said last week that the military are staying out of all this, not taking sides. Yep, I did, and so far they are. Culp meant his governors using their air guard units. Mass has that fighter unit, you know. That's bad news for us, so far as any aid coming in by air. I'd like to think that those boys wouldn't shoot down a plane full of food, but who'd want to risk it, eh? Uh, besides, a sort of Berlin airlift thing would assume they could scrape up enough jet fuel for a scheme like that. Yeah, it doesn't seem likely. If I was to hazard a guess, I think they're going to try and run the sea blockade. Ships hold a whole lot more than planes, and the feds don't have as much muscle in their Coast Guard fleet. Uh, but that's just my guess. Anyhow, the feds have their own pack of trouble. FEMA had lots of stuff stockpiled, but at the rate their coastal cities are consuming it, they know they're headed for trouble. Massachusetts is their pilot program for handling all that. They set up five city zones down there. They call them cantons. Canton Boston is pretty much everything inside the beltway of Route 128. Then there's Canton Lowell Lawrence, Cantons Worcester, Springfield, and New Bedford. They're moving everybody inside one of those five cantons. Martin recalled Judy telling him about the cantons from some of her radio listening. What she heard came from Massachusetts stations, so it needed to be processed through a propaganda filter. The announcers spoke of the cantons as a way to ensure that everybody had access to emergency supplies. Having the population concentrated into urban zones would make it easier to feed them, but also easier to control them. News reports from Mass also told stories of raider gangs sweeping down from New Hampshire to rob, pillage, and even kill people. So the cantons were touted as a safety measure. The area outside of the cantons was painted as savage, lawless wilderness. Uh, Walter? Martin raised his hand. Walter nodded to him. Have you heard anything about gangs of people from New Hampshire going down into Mass to rob or you know, whatever? Are people really doing that? I've heard that, too, said someone on the left side. Yeah, that's on the airwaves as well, said Walter. Thing is, none of my contacts along the border, like in East Ridge, Hollis, uh, South Brookline, say they've seen any real evidence of such groups. No one knows anyone personally who's involved. If those groups are as big and as bad as they say, it seems like somebody would have seen or heard something. Still, the stories give the feds and Governor Baylock fuel for calling us a den of thieves and terrorists. Well, as I was saying, sounds like they're trying to set up Providence and Hartford as cantons following the mass model. 
Balak was visiting Hartford a couple of days ago, making pretty speeches about protecting people's rights to safety and government services. They're trying to do a Canton thing up in Portland, too, but apparently it's a tougher sell up there. Uh, Mainers are a stubborn bunch, apparently. What about that shooting at the border we heard about? asked a woman up front. I, uh, that's no rumor. Walter shook his head. I talked to somebody who knew the family. Guess both parents were killed, three others wounded in a second vehicle. Kids didn't get hurt, but now they got no parents. It was a dang fool idea of theirs to rush the border checkpoint. They must have been desperate to take such chances. Martin remembered Judy saying something about Governor Vincent denouncing some deaths and posting some signs, but she had no details. This border clash must have been the event she was telling him about. Yeah, that's all I've got for now, Jeff. I'm trying to conserve my Jenny fuel, so going on air less often. Uh, that's okay, Walter. We'll take up another collection for you. Make a note of that, Drew. We really do appreciate you getting some news from out there. Chief Berg followed Walter with a report on how the various defense companies were coming along with their training and the need for coordination. The West Village Company was posting 24-7 watches on the road, and had some zigzag barriers set up in case the Azules tried another raid. Berg called for the company commanders to meet with him after the meeting to discuss setting up some rapid response teams. Chief Danton told of two more houses that were lost to fire. In both cases, squatters letting their improvised fires get away with them were the causes. Red Colliffe gave a report on the dairy. All six cows were producing, though the volume was a little off. He attributed that to the less abundant rations necessary to get all six through the winter. That reminds me, whispered Margaret. I think those wooden cheese forms Carlos made will work just fine. I pulled out the first wheel we made, and it just slipped right out. He's going to make me a couple of more. Anna made some tortillas from some of the last batch of hominy. We saved you one. Uh, one? There weren't that many. She was just experimenting. That old grinder that you didn't like turns out to be good for mashing up the dough. Anna likes it. Martin pondered about his sacks of feed corn. The first one was over half gone. There wouldn't be any new corn from his garden for another eight months. Nor could his garden produce enough corn for eight people for a year. It wasn't that big of a garden, and it didn't get enough sun. He would need an open field like the one beside the highway up toward Redmond. Do you remember that cornfield on the road up to the dump? Martin whispered to Margaret. The one that gave you corn envy because he could grow tall corn and you couldn't? Uh, yeah, that's the one. That had to have been field corn since it was still up so late in the fall. So? I just got to wondering, what happened to that corn? The outage was only a few weeks after it had been harvested. How fast does field corn leave a farm? A couple seated ahead of Martin turned to give disapproving glares at all of the whispering. Chastened, Martin and Margaret returned their attentions to the front of the room. Don Webster was giving his report on the town farm. Uh, truth is, Don said, it looked like a whole lot of food when we started, so I wasn't worried, uh, but it's going down faster than we figured. Too big a portions, Margaret whispered to Martin. Don continued, It's just a guess, but I figure we, we got maybe three more weeks of supplies left. 
I've seen their mealtimes, Margaret whispered again. No economy of scale. No balancing of carbs and proteins. I bet with even a basic meal plan, they have six weeks of food easy. And after the six weeks, Martin whispered back. The couple ahead of them turned to glare at him again. Martin looked up to see that many other people were looking back at them. Uh, Simmons, said Landers, you two seem to have a lot to say back there. Oh, ah, uh, Martin tried not to sound like a student caught passing notes. We were just discussing the ways the town farm supplies might uh, go a little farther. Uh, like what? Martin squirmed. He looked at Margaret, who shook her head with a don't-look-at-me-buster expression. Uh, well, uh, one of the things my wife does for our household is try to carefully balance our carbs and proteins so we don't consume more than our bodies need. The sound of some crickets would have been welcome. Martin squirmed at the silence and continued. Oh, that's not to say that Mrs. Webster isn't doing a great job taking care of all of these people, because uh, we know she is. It's just that, uh, well, if people are left on their own, they tend to, you know, uh, eat more than they really need. He glanced at Margaret. She mouthed the word proteins. Uh, yeah, yeah, like proteins. People need a few ounces each day, but our appetites usually push us into eating far more than we need. Martin felt like he was on a very long limb. Uh, so what are you proposing, Simmons? asked Landers. Martin wasn't trying to propose anything. He was trying to get out of detention after school and doing a poor job of it. Oh, uh, that maybe it would help if the town farm had more of a, oh, I don't know, a, a meal plan? That's just what I've been saying, said Candace. There's no coordination, no central planning. People are just eating whatever they want, whenever they want. The town farm needs a meal planner to help us maximize our supplies. I propose that we elect Mrs. Simmons as the town farm's meal planner. It's not an elected position, Candace, Landers said flatly. It doesn't even exist yet. Fine, then use your executive powers and appoint Mrs. Simmons as meal planner, Candace retorted with an annoyed wave. Yeah, not so fast. No one even asked her yet. Mrs. Simmons, asked Landers, what do you think? Margaret looked at Martin with the wide eyes of a trapped animal. She was being drafted back into small-town politics. Her expression pleaded for rescue. Martin cleared his throat. <clears> throat> How about if you let us think about it overnight? We'd like to discuss it. Landers nodded. We have to do something soon, Jeff, continued Candace. The supplies they have left won't last the winter. If we can't find more, we will have to reconsider the FEMA aid. That comment elicited several groans in the audience. They were not quite ready yet to surrender their freedom for food. This seemed like a good time, as any, for a change of topics. Uh, speaking of additional food, Martin said louder to cut through the murmurs, I have a question. I'm not sure who to ask, so I'll just toss it out there. Does anyone know who owns that cornfield up by North Pond, alongside the highway on the way toward Redmond? People looked at each other and buzzed in muted conversations. A couple of people pointed to a man in blue flannel. The man stood up hesitantly. Um, sounds like you're talking about my field. You're uh, Mr. Greydig, right? Landers said cautiously. 
He was generally good with names. Yes, sir. Clyde Gradick, North Pond Road. Why were you asking about my field? Uh, I was wondering, Martin said. Was that field corn? Yes, sir. I grow it to sell to a couple of farms that do beef cattle, like G&F and Pepperell's. If I remember right, you harvested that field only a couple of weeks before all this outage crisis hit. Uh, is that right? Martin asked. Yes, sir. I got it up in my two corn bins, pretty near dry before the power went out. Well, then uh, we may have found a new food source, Martin said to Landers. Field corn, scoffed Clyde. Yeah, people don't eat field corn. Oh, but they can. We've done it with a bag of feed corn that we got from Tractor Supply. The trick is to make hominy out of it. You soak the kernels in wood ash water, that removes the hard shell, then rinse them off and boil them. Hominy might not be an exciting food, but it's nutritious and filling. That sent the room into excited buzzing. A woman seated near Clyde asked if she could buy some of his corn. Before he could answer, another couple offered to buy some corn. Landers gaveled the room back to order. Ah, settle down, everyone, settle down. Thank you, now, thank you. Now, Mr. Gradick, it seems there's some interest in your corn as people food. Would you be willing to sell some of your corn at our market session? Why, sure, Clyde beamed. He whispered to the two young men who sat on either side of him. They got up and hurried out of the room. I just sent my two sons to go fetch some bushels. It's still on the cob, but if you were all interested in buying my corn, the least I could do is sell you some, Clyde beamed. Okay, then, said Landers. That's about it for the informative session. Company leaders, don't forget to meet with Chief Begg. Uh, let's set up for the trading pot. People were out of their seats, clearing chairs before he was done speaking. He wrapped his gavel, but it wasn't necessary. "'Simmons!' Landers called out. "'Could I see you and Mrs. Simmons for a sec?' "'I don't want to get messed up in town business again,' whispered Margaret. "'I know that,' Martin replied. "'Just tell them no.' "'Me? Why do I have to tell them anything?' "'Maybe because they want you. "'Look, if you don't want to do it, just tell them no. "'It's as simple as that.' "'Oh, it's never as simple as that,' she said. Well, it needs to be. Here comes Landers and Candace, he whispered. Remember, be firm. Just tell them no. Ah, thanks for waiting for us, Simmons. We've been discussing what you said about the town farm's food consumption. Candace here thinks you, well, or more properly, your wife, was spot on with her assessment of the problems at the farm. Mrs. Webster is, well, a gracious soul, as you know, but she has a hard time saying no. With the stress of the outage, it seems people are turning to food for comfort. Martin cast a glance at Margaret. Her face showed hints of anguish. She also had trouble saying no. Candace inserted herself into the conversation. Those poor souls at the farm need a guiding hand, Mrs. Simmons, someone who can help them manage their resources. Of course, if the selectmen had listened to me, she shot a glance at Landers, we would have had access to all of the supplies we need. We might well need to turn to those resources once food runs out, but we must make a valiant effort, right? Do everything we can with what we have, right? Martin wondered why Candace was being such an advocate for self-reliance, while simultaneously suggesting that federal aid was the better choice. 
She was a fox making suggestions on coop improvements. Yet Martin couldn't see her angle, so he let it go for the time being. Margaret sighed heavily. I'd really like to help, but I have my own household to take care of. I really don't have time to get involved in town business. Oh, you wouldn't, said Candace. This would just be helping us organize and plan the meals at the farm. Nothing more. Her wide smile looked as if it had far more than thirty-two teeth in it. Oh, I don't know, Margaret was wavering. Those poor people need a guiding hand like yours, Mrs. Simmons. Without you, they would be out of food in just a few weeks. They need you, Candace implored. Martin cringed at the words. They were like kryptonite to Margaret. He wanted to interrupt and suggest that they sleep on it and let them know in the morning. That would give her time to firm up her resolve and say no. Only for a week, Margaret said. What? Martin was disappointed, if not particularly surprised. Uh, don't you figure you should think about it? I did. Only for a week. That's all. Then I'm done. I get them organized, teach them what they need to know, then let them manage it themselves. Oh, that will be marvelous, Candace purred as she clapped her hands together. Thanks so much, Mrs. Simmons, said Landers. He shook her hand. This town owes you both a big debt of gratitude. As Candace and Landers walked away, Margaret said to herself, more than to Martin, Only for a week. Clyde Gradig's sons returned with two large baskets and two bags filled with dry ears of corn. They set up on a table near the front of the room. People lined up. Landers suggested that Martin give a little talk on how they turned dry field corn into hominy. He had a small Ziploc bag of hominy in his pocket. The cold hominy made for a Spartan snack, but it made a compelling visual aid. Seeing the finished product helped ease many skeptical minds. The two sons showed people how to rub the ears together to quickly scrape free the hard kernels. Clyde announced that the price was a dollar an ear, and he would only accept dollars. No checks, no IOUs. This sent some waves of grumbling through the crowd. Clyde looked worried for a moment, but as the grumbling subsided into resignation, his smile returned. The first woman in line only had a five-dollar bill, so she bought five ears. The next man in line flashed a hundred-dollar bill and offered to buy the entire tableful. The crowd shouted him down in protests. This prompted a house rule of only five ears per person. Clyde promised to bring more if he sold out and people didn't get a chance to buy yet. This appeased the crowd, but the man with the hundred-dollar bill quietly left the meeting. Clyde's two sons managed the corn selling. Very little other trading had been transacted. What trading there was amounted to trading goods for paper dollars in order to buy Clyde's corn. Most people didn't come with cash anymore— Many didn't start the crisis with much cash in their homes as it was. A few people, with tradable amounts of cash, were doing a brisk business trading for other goods. Martin wondered if corn would become the dominant feature in the weekly trade sessions and maybe the basis for a new local economy. Could it be that Clyde's stash of corn would be the staple to get people through the winter? Did Clyde have enough to become the foundation of a local economy? He recalled Susan talking about supply and liquidity. Curiosity wanted answers. So, uh, Clyde, Martin struck up a conversation while the sons transacted business. 
You say you grow your corn for a couple of beef farmers. Yep, corn-fed beef fetches a pretty penny. Uh, how much do you have? Martin wanted to do some mental math. Would Clyde's corn be enough to get the town through the winter? No, some, Clyde said. From Clyde's expression, Martin could tell that he didn't want to reveal how much he had. That piqued Martin's curiosity and posed a challenge. If you don't want me to know, I want to know all the more. He guessed that Clyde might prefer an undefined inventory that would give him more freedom when it came to pricing. He could pretend to be running out so he could charge more, then suddenly find more and resume selling. To persist in asking Clyde how much he had would only put him more on guard, so Martin pretended not to care all that much. Uh, yeah, I suppose it's pretty hard to tell how much you get in a harvest, Martin said nonchalantly. On the hunch that Clyde might be prone to boast, Martin decided to get chatty. A man might not tell you something outright, but he might leak enough information around the edges of a conversation, if he talks long enough. I've always admired those fields of yours. I'd pass them every time we went up to the dump. Sure wish I could grow corn like you. Clyde beamed smugly. Yep, takes a skilled hand. Still, I had a pretty good year in my garden. I had some ears that got this big. He held up his hands about eight inches apart. In truth, his ears were more like six inches long, but this was a game, not a factual report. Ah, shoot, said Clyde with a dismissive sniff. I'd have thrown a runty ear like that to my pig. Mine was averaging this big. He denoted about twelve inches. Big around is your arm, too, and not a bug on him. Wow, that's impressive. Martin ignored the fact that he could see in Clyde's baskets that the ears weren't much more than eight inches long. Still, I got almost a full bushel out of my little patch. My ears might have been smaller, but I bet I matched you in pounds per acre. Oh, I doubt that, Clyde rocked back on his heels. Had me one of my best harvests this year. Over a hundred and fifty bushels per acre. Ain't nobody around here gonna beat that. Martin let out an impressed whistle. You must be one heck of a farmer. Clyde closed his eyes and nodded. Martin changed the topic to tractors and whether it was better to rent or buy specialty equipment. He didn't want Clyde to realize that he had given Martin a useful data point. He could guess how many of Clyde's ears would fit into a bushel. Now he knew how many bushels per acre. What remained was to find out how many acres he had planted. Yeah, I've always admired those two fields of yours. The one up by the road gets a lot of sun, Martin pretended interest in a box of used shoes someone brought in. Since you can get such a good price for your feed corn, I'm surprised you planted hay in that long field in the back. Yeah, that one ain't mine, Clyde frowned. Belongs to my neighbor. I tried to rent it from him, but he wouldn't deal. Prettiest two-acre patch around North Pond, too. Sunny, ideal for corn. Oh, that's too bad. Martin studied a pair of boots someone was offering to trade. It's a shame he wouldn't rent it out. You could have doubled your production. He fished for a quantity. Dang right. Instead, he grows that frou-frou alfalfa and timothy for them riding horses in town. He only gets about four tons of hay off that field. He charges top dollar for a ton, because those silly horse people think if they spend a lot on feed for their prize horses... 
It proves how much they love it, or something. Never understood horse people. But even at his 250 a ton, he only gets a thousand bucks off of that field. Martin wanted to keep Clyde talking. He could guess that Clyde had two acres of corn, but he wanted to cross-check the figure to be more certain. Well, a thousand bucks sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Oh, not if I had grown corn, Clyde countered. I made three times that. Wow, I had no idea feed corn for beef was so lucrative. You must be able to charge, like, five bucks a bushel or something? Ha, huh, you're way low by half. Local restaurants pay top dollar for local corn-fed, so the beef boys, well, they don't complain. Martin's wheels turned. $3,000 at $10 a bushel, 300 bushels. At 150 bushels per acre, Clyde had two acres. There was his cross-check. Doing a bit more mental math, Martin calculated that there was roughly 50 ears of corn in a bushel. At a dollar an ear, Clyde was looking to make $15,000 off the residents of Cheshire. Was there that much cash among all of the households in Cheshire? Would Clyde trade for something else once the cash dried up? Martin thanked Clyde for his expert farmer advice and excused himself. Martin walked around the rest of the trading floor. Other than Landers, there was no interest in their jars of jam. He also noticed that the knick-knack lady wasn't sitting at her corner table. In fact, he had not seen her at the meeting at all. Margaret was in line to buy some corn. She said she might as well, as long as it was for sale. Margaret was chatting with a pair of ladies. He hoped that she was right about helping at Town Farm being for only a week. She already had enough stress managing their house. He knew that she had a weakness for the siren call of helping others. He resolved to be less hands-off than usual and intervene if he needed to. "'Hey, Martin,' boomed a voice behind him. A heavy pat on his shoulder quickly followed. Oh, "'Rick, what are you doing down here? That's quite a hike from your place, isn't it?' "'It is, but Connie wanted me to come and see what you guys buy and sell here. Nobody doing anything like this in Longmeadow. All just hunkered down, afraid of the lake's people.' "'Rick!' Margaret smiled warmly as she walked up, hugging her bag of corn. "'Is Connie with you? We haven't spoken in ages.' She peered around him. Nope, sorry, just me. She's minding the home fires. She sent me down here to check out how this trade meeting stuff worked. So if we came down, we'd know what to bring. Kind of a long walk, you know. Looks like a lively business in corn. It is, she said. But it wasn't before today. You should bring down some of Connie's bread. I bet that would trade really well. Uh, that's what Connie had in mind, actually, said Rick. She's been keen to trade for meats and such. I'd like to trade for a couple of more spades. Uh, have you seen any spades for trade? Not really, replied Martin. Why more spades? Oh, for burying the dead lake people, Rick said matter-of-factly. The what? The lake people, you know, camped around Indian lakes. Most of them are refugees who walked out of Manchester when things started going bad. Some of them had camping gear. Lots didn't. Most of them set up camps around the lakes, a source of water, you know. After a week or so, things started getting ugly. Long story. I'll tell you more about it next time. Uh, sounds like a long one, Martin said, with an understanding nod. It is. Bottom line is that the outcasts and runaways from the two big camps, well, they tend to die out in the woods at night. 
Sometimes they die on my side of the rise. Mac and I, yeah, I'll tell you about him later, too. We go out and haul the bodies back over the lakeside or the rise and bury them. We don't want decaying body stuff washing down into my pond or getting into my well. Only got one spade, though. Slow going. Need more if we're going to keep up. Geez, that sounds pretty grim, said Martin. You guys okay with all that? Yeah, I guess. Not much choice, though, eh? Well, I better get started if I'm going to get back before dark. You'll be back next week? asked Margaret. That's Connie's plan, Margaret whispered into Martin's ear. Uh, say, Rick, Martin said, I've got an old spade that I'm not using. The tip's kind of worn down, but it's sturdy enough. What would you say to trading two of Connie's loaves and a cup of her sourdough starter? Margaret smiled and nodded eagerly. Sounds okay to me, but I'm not the one baking the bread. I'll see what Connie says. She'll probably say yes, since it's for you guys. Well, I better get going. See you next week. Don't forget to bring that spade. They waved as Rick walked away, pulling down his hat and adjusting his scarf. If we can get some of Connie's starter, I can be baking real bread again. Margaret's eyes sparkled with enthusiasm. Oh, flat bread is easy enough, but real bread will be more filling. Think you'll have any time for baking bread? You just agreed to be the meal planner for the town farm. Margaret stared into the distance for a moment. Yeah, I think so. It shouldn't take more than an hour or so each day, uh, for a week. I, I only promised them a week. Martin nodded, but he knew from past experience that one good deed tends to reveal more that need doing. He also knew that Margaret had low resistance to good deeds needing to be done. And that's the end of Chapter 1 of Book 3. Thanks to all of you listeners who participated in my survey and those who went ahead and bought me a coffee. I do appreciate that a lot.